I'm going to dive in here pretty quickly because we have a lot to cover today. Um, if you have your Bible, that's great, but I, most of the p- scripture we're going to look at is printed for you and a place for you to take notes. All right, let me pray, and I'm going to say a couple of introductory things. So please pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you that you have purchased us for yourself through the offering, the sacrifice of your only son. Thank you for wiping our sins away, canceling the record of debt that stood against us, making us righteous in your sight through Jesus Christ our Lord. Because this is true, we ask that we would love you and your revealed ways more and more and more. Grant us today soft-heartedness in your presence. Make us those who love to hear your voice coming through the scriptures and the power of the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, glad you're coming in. Make sure you get sheets in the back if you're just coming in. And the closer you sit to me, the more I think you like me. So just keep, move up if you can. All right. So um, there are, before we dive in today, I want to remind you of our goal for this study. Okay. Our goal for the study is to understand what God says about himself and how he relates to people in various forms of poverty and what God says about his people, how we should relate to, think about, and act toward people with various types of poverty. That's the main goal of the study. The goal of this study is not to get very practical and figure out how we, next week, are going to help the poor. That's a very important conversation. That's not our goal in this study. Our goal in this study is simply to understand what do the scriptures say? What does God say to us about himself his people, and the poor. So last week, we did a quick summary of the law, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Today, we're going to kind of like dip in some soundings into prophetic literature. In, in looking at the law and got what God says about himself and the poor, we looked at a tiny minority of passages, and they're all very, very consistent. So if you saw what we said last week, you can turn to lots of other places in Deuteronomy and Leviticus and Exodus and see the exact same things. Today, we're going to look at some parts of Isaiah because our church is studying Isaiah right now in adult Sunday school and look maybe a little bit at Jeremiah if we get there. And we are just skimming the surface on what the prophets say about about this topic. But what we're going to see today is emblematic, very, um, what's we're looking for? Uh, Very uh, similar to uh, what you get in all the prophets. Today, we're not going to look at Amos and Micah. What we're going to see today in Isaiah is the main central theme in Amos and Micah. We're not going to look at those passages. We don't have time. You can read what we're going to read today. You can read it in Zechariah 7. I think that was part of your homework. Uh, So there's there's a lot of uh, similarity here. And we're just going to hit some some passages to see kind of what did Yahweh say through his prophets to his people, and, and just to get that. And then next week, we're going to look at wisdom literature. Next time we're together, the next time we're going to look at Jesus and the Gospels. And then we're going to look at the Apostle Paul. And so the goal is just to see, does God have a consistent message about himself and his people and the poor from the law, the prophets, the wisdom literature, the Gospels and the epistles? I'm telling you already, the answer is yes. And your job is to read the scriptures and see if you agree with me. So let me just give you one more little piece of background information. Um, I, ha- I, I've, I grew up Presbyterian. I've been Presbyterian my entire life. Matter of fact, my family went to a Presbyterian church before any of us knew Jesus. And uh, my mother grew up in a, in a family where uh, she did not personally know Jesus as she grew up with her family. And they did attend different types of churches through, the, through her growing up, but she had not personally put her faith in Jesus when she married my dad. My dad grew up at Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church and his family was very consistent. They went to church every year, four times a year, very consistently. (laughs) They went on Easter, Christmas, Easter, Mother's Day, 
and one more Sunday to prove that we didn't just go to church on Christmas, Easter, and Mother's Day. So four times a year. Now, my dad was sent to Sunday school every week because that was kind of convenient for his parents. And that's where you learn to be a good boy and be a good person. At Sunday school, you get taught the right morals. Um, but my dad was not a believer. So when I was a little child, my sister is one year and one day older than me, January 5th, January 6th, our birthdays. When we were little kids, we went to Whitehaven Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee, and my parents were there, and they were very involved in that Presbyterian Church. None of us knew Jesus. Someone came and began to tell my parents about Jesus. It made my parents very angry that this 12-year-old boy would ask them spiritual questions, which God used to lead to their conversion. He also took my sister and me to vacation Bible school, and we all became Christians because this 12-year-old boy, Walter, had the courage to tell us about Jesus. And so we all became believers. So here's one thing that I'm really thankful for. Here's a huge grace in my life. Basically what we are, are we're Bible Presbyterians. Because when my parents first became converted and they were members of a Presbyterian church, they just wanted to know not really what do Presbyterians believe, which they came to understand and love and we've all learned to cherish together. But as brand new believers, they wanted to know who is Jesus? What does the Bible say? And so I just want you to know, growing up, you know, sometimes it's, we like to put people in categories or you're that kind of Presbyterian or this kind of Presbyterian. Essentially, what I am is a Bible Presbyterian. I'm a Presbyterian minister by conviction. I think our doctrines come from the scriptures. I think our, our church polity is the most biblical church polity. And one of the things I want to do with you as long as Jesus has me here as your pastor is help you see that the stuff that we say and that we believe, that it really does come from the scriptures. And that's really important. That, that's a deep, deep desire that more and more will connect the doctrines that we cherish as actually coming from what God has actually said. And we'll have deep, deep conviction that, oh, the doctrine of justification that if I believe in Jesus, my, my guilt is wiped away and his righteousness belongs to me. Oh, the Bible says that. That's wonderful. I can have deep assurance that my God says, if you believe in me, your sins won't count against you. If you believe in me, I accept you as perfectly obedient already in Christ. I mean, that's great news, right? So, so it's, it's really good news if it's true and God has said it. So today, as we go through the prophetic literature, um, it might sound more like you're a cancer patient and you're coming to a doctor and just think about what do you want if, if you are, if you're, if you're sick, I'm not saying everyone in the room is sick, but, but there are times when you hear the truth of God's word and you're like, Oh, that is really comforting. I'm so glad to know that's what the grace of God looks like. And there are times you look in the mirror of God's word and you're like, ouch, there's some things in me that aren't right. And I'm so glad God loves me enough to tell me the truth. So if you were a cancer patient and you were coming to me and you had stage two cancer, but you had the type of cancer that was treatable, but progresses rapidly, I could, as your doctor say, you know, I think she's having a bad day. I don't think I'll tell her. Let's not tell her the truth. Now that, that might look kind, but it's really, really unkind the opposite of love. But if someone comes to you and you're an oncologist and they have stage two cancer and it, it rapidly progresses and you, have, and you tell them the truth, you've seen the x-rays, you've seen the tests, you say, hey, I just want you to know that you're sick, but you don't have to stay sick. <laughs> you can be healthy. That's what Isaiah is doing. Okay, and my goal today is to tell you what Isaiah is saying. And this is what, what God was saying through the prophet Isaiah to his people in the eighth century. Now, when you and I read the Bible, James says we're looking in the mirror. And the wise person walks away and says, I gotta fix some stuff, right? Like, like stop telling sermon illustrations about bacon or whatever. Whatever's off, whatever's bad, I gotta see what's wrong and fix it. Poor Joan, she was like, I was on that search committee and there he is up there talking about bacon. I can't believe it. Anyway, okay, all right. So we've already prayed. Look at, look at the front of your thing. And here's a reminder of the, a summary of the law. Deuteronomy 10 is really good. Uh, Deuteronomy, the second giving of the namas, the law. 
the law that Yahweh gave Israel is being repeated in, a, in basically five big sermons in Deuteronomy. And this is Moses saying, hey, I just want to remind you who you are and who God is before I peace out <laughs> and before you guys go into the land. Here's the big picture. And so it's the second giving of the law. That's what the word Deuteronomy, where it comes from. Okay, verses 17 through 19. For Yahweh, your God, is God of gods and Lord of lords the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. What's he like? Verse 18. He, Yahweh himself, executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner. The sojourner is the outsider who doesn't really fit in the community yet. Giving him, the outsider, the gur, food and clothing. Love the gur the outsider, the, the, the political refugee, the one who's running for their life because of religious or political oppression or for whatever, you know, plot, blight or whatever reason. Love the Gur, the sojourner, therefore, for you were Gurs in the land of Egypt. You were the oppressed outsider. So the fact that there were sojourners in Egypt, here's what Yahweh through Moses is reminding his people. You were the outsiders who didn't really fit in Egypt. And you were in Egypt, so you were oppressed outsiders. That's who you were. That's your own story. Remember your own story and relate to people going through hard situations like someone who gets that because you've lived that very painful experience of being an outsider who didn't really fit in and being an an oppressed minority. It's really interesting that before there is scripture for God's people, they live the experience of being an oppressed minority, which is what the book of Exodus is largely about. Okay, before we flip over, I want to give you some key terms that we're going to bump into in multiple places, okay? Bible words. Yahweh executes justice. So on the front page, if you want to write some notes here before you even flip it over, maybe I wrote mine right there on the front because <laughs> I didn't want to skip these definitions. Yahweh executes, executes justice. The Hebrew word is mishpat. If you want to write it in English, M-I-S-H-P-A-T, not mishpat, mishpat, okay? And um, basically, when someone does justice, they're either A, giving someone their due. If you work for me for a day's wages, it's just that I pay you a day's wages. That's justice, giving someone their due. And the other thing that justice is, is correcting oppression, Someone who does justice, he corrects situations that are wrong. Okay, so doing justice is doing the right thing, uh, giving someone their due, or correcting situations that are wrong, and these situations are wrong relationally or communally. So not everyone was here last week. This is our or our first week of study. We were all off last week. Woo-hoo. Um, but if you were here for the first study two weeks ago, Let's remind everybody, ourselves and our new people, what are the four key relationships that we're all made for? I'm made for relationship with God and then, and then others and then the whole creation, right? So I'll say it again, yes. Um, we, we are all created for four key relationships. Relationship with God, that's the most important one. There's one true God, he made all things. If you're not ready rightly related to God, it doesn't matter how wealthy or how poor you are. Okay, relationship with God, yourself, others, and the whole creation. Okay, we exist in these relationships. Now, if I were teaching 65 men, I would spend more time on explaining the relational nature of life, but this is a group of women, and I don't have to explain that to you. You get it. You're wired to fully understand What I just said, our lives are relational. Our lives are a network of relationships. It's who we are. It's how God made us. And all four of those relationships matter. So poverty, right? You can be impoverished spiritually, no connection to God. You can be impoverished interpersonally, psychologically impoverished. You can be uh, impoverished socially, I mean, I bet everyone in this room knows people that are really, really wealthy and they don't have one friend, no one they can trust. That's severe poverty, right? 
okay? And then also relationship with the whole creation, with your body and the whole, uh, the, the whole of life, work itself, which is part of God's plan for his good creation, okay? So um, let me talk about righteousness for a minute, so we'll go back to justice, because justice is giving someone their due or correcting things that aren't right, all right? Relationally or communally. Uh, in the Bible, um, you know, how the community functions matters all the time. Okay, let's talk about righteousness, right? Righteous or righteousness. So the word here is tzedakah, tzedek, righteous, right, tzedakah. So T-S-E-D-E-K-A, tzedakah. So something like, like a snare drum at the beginning. T-S-E-D-E-K-A. You can put an H on that if you want to. doesn't matter because it's not the real word. We're just <laughs> sounding out a Hebrew word, Okay. And so righteous is doing what is right or correct. To do righteousness, to do right, is to do what is right or correct. But, but think about what we just said a minute ago. In the Bible, it, it's significantly important to do what's right in these relationships, right? Right? So it's right to honor God, right? It's right to obey God. It's right to be a healthy steward of oneself, even if occasionally one, sometimes one eats too much bacon, okay? It's, it's right to honor God. It's right to relate to yourself, right? As, 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 as a good thing to be stewarded. It's not right to idolize oneself. That's narcissism, it's idolatry. It's a form of death. But it's right to be a healthy steward of one's self. It's right to relate to others like they're made in the image of God. It's right to show kindness. It's right to be mutually supportive of the people in your life. Is it, from the Bible's perspective, it's right to treat everyone with the same level of dignity, no matter what their social standing or class is, right? It's right to treat people like they're made in God's image everywhere all the time without exception. It's always right to treat people like image bearers. Sometimes you might have to put an image bearer to death. That might be the right thing to do, but it's always right to treat people with great dignity because they're made in God's image. It's right. And it's right to relate to the creation, not as one big lump of coal, right? But to, to, to relate to it as whatever it is. The creation is diverse. It's full of rich and good things. Some of those things can be burned for fuel. Other of those things, you really probably shouldn't treat cardinals like fuel, right? So it's just good to, to relate to the, to the creation rightly, right? To, to see that you have a relationship with work, with, with the real actual world. Does that make, everybody make sense? So to do what's right in all those relationships, that's what the Bible's describing as righteousness. It's doing what's right in terms of all these relationships, right? And God's so great, he tells us what is right, <laughs> right? He tells us what is right. So we all know that lying is not right, that stealing is not right, that adultery is not right, right? So it's right to be faithful to your covenants, right? It's right to live out these relationships with relational integrity. Everybody get that? Okay, good, good, good. Okay, so now let's think about justice one more time. Go back to justice. One way to think about justice often in the Old Testament, right, is restoring righteousness. Relationships have been broken. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. So often in the Bible, Justice is restorative. And here's another thing that's interesting about caring for widows and orphans. What is the very good word we almost always use if we're doing ministry to widows and orphans? What do we call that? Charity, mercy, right? Yes, Yes. Guess what that is typically called in the Bible? Justice. When you give the widow what she's due, that's the right thing to do. It's justice. 
when you care for the orphan, it's just, it's mishpat, okay? Is, should you do it with a merciful heart? Absolutely. Should you do it with charity, with, with love and affection? Absolutely. But the Bible does not allow us to say mercy and charity are options, right? In the Bible, it's actually just. Because what you're doing is, in the ancient world, the family was the basic, the basic place where resources were, were managed and stewarded and where inheritance were passed along. And in the ancient world, that was patriarchal and patrilocal and patrilineal, okay? Patriarchal, patrilocal, and patrilineal. So basically, all those inheritance rights and all the rights of, of, of economic stability were passed through dads and sons, period, so if you were fatherless, you didn't have a way to participate in the community in a way that was, was, was sustaining and for flourishing. And if you were a widow, there wasn't a natural organic way to participate in the life of the community. So it was right for those people to still participate in the life of the community, for their needs to be met, for their gifts to be accepted and, and contribute to the community, okay? And so it was just to take care of the widow because she's made in God's image. She has a life, her needs matter. So in the Bible, you should do that with love and mercy, but it's the right thing to do. Does that make sense? And you're correcting a bad situation because without that, she's excluded. And the same for the fatherless. Without that connection to the person who can own property and pass it along, that's a situation that's not right. So you correct it by caring for them. Okay, that's basically how righteousness and justice work in the Old Testament. There are 700-page books written on that, and I just summarized it in 11 minutes or something. I don't know how long it was. It doesn't matter. Okay, now we're going to fly. Woo! Now let's look at Isaiah 1. You know Isaiah 1.1, the vision that Isaiah saw, but we're going to dive into verse 2 because I'm trying to make this work. Notice the first thing you have in Isaiah Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for Yahweh has spoken. Yahweh, through the prophet Isaiah, is calling heaven and earth to be witnesses because Yahweh has a covenantal case against his people whom he loves. So heaven and earth here are witnesses, like in a law court scene. Yahweh loves Israel. Yahweh loves Judah. Yahweh loves his covenant people, but he's going to take them to court, metaphorically speaking, and he calls on heaven and earth as witnesses. In other words, this is cosmically obvious, but I'm going to tell you the truth. That's what's happening. That's the book of Isaiah. Children have I reared and brought up, but they've rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know my people do not understand. Now listen to these general terms. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers. That's not typically how you talk to covenant people, but that's what he's saying. Children who deal corruptly. So right there you have four kind of common words for sin, for rebellion, sinful, iniquity, evildoers, corrupt dealings. But just note, these are all general terms for rebellion and sin. Right here, you know Yahweh is, has righteous indignation towards these people, but it's all very general right now. He's hot, but what's he hot about? Okay? And then look at how relational it is at the end of verse 4. They have forsaken Yahweh, relational. They have despised the Holy One of Israel, relational. They are utterly estranged. So this is about the, the most important relationship. They have offended God himself, Yahweh, their Savior, their Redeemer, the Lord of heaven and earth. Okay, so we know there's, a, there's generally they're wicked, right? Sin and iniquity. And the sin is ultimately against God. They've estranged themselves from their God through their iniquity, through their sin, through their corrupt dealings. Okay. But that's real general. 
right? Like, so what did they do? (laughs) What's the problem? But look at, before we are told what the problem is, we're told in verses five, six, seven, and eight, there's no health, no healing, and no help. Except. So look at the no health. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. The whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it. But bruises and sores and raw wounds, a yucky picture. That's no health. Now look, no healing. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. There's, there's no help. In your very presence, foreigners will devour your land. They're not coming to help. They're going to take advantage of you. It is desolate and overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion, the holy city of David, the place where God meets with his people in the temple, is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. It's supposed to be the royal city of the descendants of David where the temple is, and it's like a country bumpkin booth on the side of the road in the middle of nowhere. That's the image. Tumbleweeds are rolling through Jerusalem. Metaphorically, it's poetry, but that's the image. No health, no healing, no help except Yahweh. Verse 9, if Yahweh of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we would have been, ouch, like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Woo. <laughs> I think most of you know your Bibles, <laughs> okay? I mean, that is really brutal. Yahweh, this is, a, this is a general description of who we are, but Yahweh preserved a remnant. And if he hadn't preserved a remnant of people who just look to him and trust in him and keep his ways, eh, Jerusalem would be like Sodom and Gomorrah, a waste place of righteous judgment. I mean, that is really, really beautiful. Now, why all this sickness? Think of the general terms again, the sin, the iniquity, the corruption of rebelliousness, the offspring of evil doers. What specifically is the sin? There's not a sin named yet. So look with me over the next page, 10 through 12. Hear the word of Yahweh, you rulers of Sodom. Uh Uh-oh. You know what he just did? He's like, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. And now he's like, okay, you are like Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, that's like, I've heard sermons like that. Anyway, hear this word of Yahweh, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Isaiah now, Yahweh now through Isaiah is saying to his own people in Jerusalem and Judea and, and Israel as a whole, that's who you are. So you are the rulers. Y'all rule Sodom people. You're the people of Gomorrah. I and mean, it's a really, really... Um, Strong indictment. And then look at what, in verses 11 through 15, here's what Yahweh says next, which is really shocking. Are you ready? Here's the title for this next few verses. Worship won't fix it. Now, we still don't know what the problem is, not specifically. But in verses 11 through 15, Here's what we're told, worship won't fix it. And when I mean worship, I don't mean wild, crazy, work yourself up like the pagans. Jesus critiques that in the Sermon on the Mount. What he's about to describe is the prescribed sacrifices of Israel. And it won't fix it. They're formally and externally doing the worship that Yahweh requires. And Yahweh will read it, says, stop it. It's your worship's become a burden to me. It's, it's weariness and I don't want to hear it. So here's what he says. <clears throat> what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says Yahweh. I've had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. Those are prescribed sacrifices. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. 
three of the very primary animals they're told to sacrifice, whose blood they're told to drain and use in the temple. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you, look at this language, this trampling of my courts. You, you see the picture, right? Yahweh is saying, hey, you Israelites are coming in and you're doing the sacrifices exactly as I've told you to do them. You're sacrificing the right animals and doing the right things with the blood. And when you come into my courts to meet with me, doing the very things I've commanded you to do in worship, you are trampling my courts. You're stomping on my presence. It's unacceptable. Verse 13, bring no more vain offerings. <laughs> they're the exact offerings that he's prescribed, but now Yahweh says they're empty. They're meaningless. Incense is an abomination to me. There's a recipe for incense that Yahweh gave Moses to give Aaron. There's no indication here they're not following the recipe. Right? <clears throat> It's an abomination to me. The very things you're doing that I've commanded, new moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, all things God requires. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Ah, oh, there it is. The problem is not how they're worshiping. The problem is that there's, they're, they're keeping up the external act of worship, but they're living in iniquity, Right? So that, that's the problem. The, the worship is hypocritical. There's an enormous gap between what they're doing with their hearts and six days of the week and then their worship on special occasions and on Sabbaths. By the way, the Israelite people gather in God's presence a lot. New moon, beginning of every month, Sabbaths, all kinds of festivals. And, and also there were daily sacrifices and sacrifices for sin and various uh, things related to cleanness and uncleanness. And Yahweh's saying, I, don't, I actually don't want any of it. So he gets a little more specific and then he gets real specific. Your new moons and your ported feasts, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands, again, are full of blood. In other words, you're not innocent. You're guilty. And you're waving your guilty hands in my presence as though your hands are innocent, but they're not. So once again, we see the problem, the, the gap between their, their true lives and their worship. So finally, in verses 16 and 17, you get the only specific description of the sin that Yahweh is upset about. So that's great. It's all in one place, okay? And it's specific. And this is really interesting language. Verse 16, wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. In other words, I actually want your hands to be clean when you come into my presence, Okay? What are they going to do? Remove the evil deeds from before my eyes. In other words, stop doing the evil deeds. That's it. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good, verse 17. And here's what he wants them to do in place of the evil they've been doing. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Note here, learn to do good equals seeking justice. Seeking justice equals correcting oppression, right? That's exactly what he wants them to do. There's all these, do you see what's going on now? Remember what we said at the beginning? Yahweh is upset with them. They're estranged from him. They've abandoned him. How, do they, how does Yahweh know it? They're treating the vulnerable terribly. You see that? It's the, it's the sin against others in the community that's so offensive against God. Do you see that in the passage? At the beginning, remember, go back to the beginning in verse, into verse four, you have forsaken Yahweh. You've despised the Holy One of Israel. They, God's people, are utterly estranged. All relational terms, they're estranged from Yahweh. How? They're not doing good. They're practicing evil, not doing good. Specifically, they're not seeking justice. They're not correcting oppression. 
So Yahweh's saying here, the way you're relating to each other is offensive to me. Does that make, is that clear in the passage? Okay. So look at, just in case we didn't know what those words meant, and we defined them earlier, but look at the end of verse 17. Bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. So now it's really clear. This is what they're not doing and what he wants them to begin doing. Their hands are dirty because they're not taking care of the most vulnerable. He wants them to stop oppressing the most vulnerable and neglecting the most vulnerable and 180, turn back to him, and then he wants them to serve the most vulnerable, right? He wants them to bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. That's it. So we've been looking through all the whole first chapter. What's the specific sin? What's the specific thing he demands of them? And that's it, right? That's, that's the, this is the only place it gets really specific. Um, and then I'll keep reading. Come now, let us reason together, says Yahweh. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like clemson, they will become like wool. And, and man, we know that, that that verse right there ties into a much bigger line throughout the whole Bible. Hallelujah. Ultimately, Jesus Christ came and fulfilled God's law in perfection. And this is great news. He was crushed and crucified in the place of the wicked. Now that is great news, right? So if you believe that, right, you believe, oh, left to myself, I believe this about me. You're seeing your pastor. Left to myself, the true Sodom and Gomorrah in me would be evident everywhere. Apart from the true grace of God, I'm a wicked rebel. Right? And I'm absolutely rescued by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. He's paid for all my sin. He is my righteousness. Now that that's true, should I love what God loves more or care less about what God cares about? If God has sent his son to reconcile me to himself, and now I see myself as the adopted son of my heavenly father, Should I love the things that my father loves or should I cherish those very wicked things for which his son was crucified for me? If Jesus Christ was crucified for me because I'm wicked, should I cherish that former wickedness and live in it or should I turn my back on that which God sees as wicked and walk in the ways that he clearly loves, right? It's it's obvious, right? No one in this room is going to be forgiven or saved by taking care of the vulnerable. But we who are forgiven and saved by God's grace, of course, we're going to care deeply for the things that our Father cares about. It's just going to be, it's going to become second nature to us to take care of the vulnerable and to resist oppression. It's just going to be obvious. Oh, of course, (laughs) of course. Of course, I want to see people on the margins of the community restored to life in the flourishing of the community. Of course, of course. That's what God's like. That's how God treated me. That's how I'm going to treat my neighbors. That just should be obvious, right? That's just receiving the grace of God and being transformed by the grace of God and loving what is righteous and what is just. Okay, now um, flip with me over to Isaiah 1, 21 to 23. I got to fly like an eagle. Oh, I'm doing okay. All right, two points if you got that Isaiah reference. Okay, Isaiah 1, 21 to 23. Even though there's only one place where God gets specific in the whole chapter about what was offensive to him, he does go back and repeat it. And just as a general principle of biblical teaching, this is very common. God is pro us getting the point and he's not pro us missing the point. That is love. Christy and I raised four teenagers. Let me tell you, you got to repeat yourself. Okay. How the faithful city has become a whore. Mm. She who was full of mishpat, justice. Zedekah lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wines, 
mixed with water. That's a metaphor, poetic, but here's what it means. You're selling goods at apex price, but you've cheapened those goods, right? So there's, there's illegitimate business practices. You're enriching yourself by selling a gallon of milk, but we all know it's four-fifths of a gallon. You're selling a dozen eggs, but there's 10 and a half eggs in there. One of them's cracked, but you're selling it like it's, you know, a full dozen. That's what's being said. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe, bribe and runs after gifts. They, the people in general, do not bring justice to the fatherless and the widow's cause does not come to them. So just let me just clarify this one thing so we don't miss it. In the ancient world, there are four categories of people who needed uh, God's people to respond to them with righteousness and justice with mercy and compassion, right? The fatherless, because they clearly didn't have the normal central path to flourish, right? Because it was patriarchal, patrilocal, and patrilineal, okay? So if you didn't have a father, you were cut out of the normal system and you had to be brought in and cared for, restored to the community so that you could grow and flourish and participate well in the community. Widows, no connection, to the husband who had the rights. Sojourners, those are people who were running for their lives and passing through your city, whether because of political oppression, religious oppression, uh, they're being chased down by some kind of crazy warlord or, or because of like famine or whatever, but they had to, had to, they're literally t- running with their wives and children from this place over here and they're passing through your land. They might pass through for seven years if you're hospitable, or they might pass through for seven weeks. Who knows? Okay, but you had to take care of it. It was just and right from God's perspective. It was just and right to take care of widows, orphans, sojourners, the girls, the strangers, who often were running from oppression. You couldn't take advantage of them because they were very vulnerable. And the fourth category was just the poor in general. The widow, the orphan, the sojourner, and the poor. Because sometimes whole families were poor and they needed to be cared for. And so the Bible has got a lot of legislation about that. The year of Jubilee, the gleaning laws, the tithe laws. And guess what? When you go and read the tithe laws, guess who you're told about? The widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, and the poor. When you read the gleaning laws, guess who you're told about? The widow, the orphans, the sojourner, and the poor. When you read about the law of Jubilee, it's about whole families who were excluded from their land. They had to give up their land and they eventually get it back. And so in the Sabbath laws, uh, are, who benefits? the You, your family, your servants, and the widow, the orphan, the sojourner, and the poor. It's just over and over and over again. So what's being, what are we being told here? Sometimes in a community, there are people, God's image bearers, who are flourishing. And then sometimes there's people outside of the flourishing who are on the margins and they're vulnerable. And God wants his people to see the vulnerable and care for those who are vulnerable. And so here's what's what's complicated in North America, especially in the buckle of the Bible belt. And here's a mistake I want to get us away from. We could think about the rich and the poor as us and them. Because let's face it, not a lot of poverty in, at Covenant Presbyterian Church or in over the mountain culture, right? That's, so we could think about the rich and the poor as the us and the them. But one of the complicating factors, set aside for a minute that everybody in our region is made in God's image and deserves to be treated with dignity, a lot of the poorest people who live within 10 miles of us are our brothers and sisters in Christ. They might go to other churches, but they actually are widows in really poor neighborhoods who are crying out to our Father in heaven asking for care and support. And they're our brothers and sisters in Christ. I was very involved in a widow's ministry for a long time in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And Andy, my mentor, said, Robbie, I want you to just note where the leak, we're going to the house, I haven't been to this widow's house before, I just want you to note where the leak is. I was like, okay. He's like, there's going to be a leak in the roof and you find it. I was like, okay. And I was like, Andy, it's crazy. It was, over the, it was over her bed. He's like, huh, interesting. Went to the next house. Robbie, see if you know where the leak is over her bed. And, and, and through his three decades of experience, 
when he went to care for the poorest widows in that city and saw leaks and roofs, 90% of the time it was over the widow's bed. I don't know why that is. It seems crazy to me, but it, he's like, he didn't, have to, he didn't have to walk in the house to know that I, I would discover it. And another thing I learned by doing ministry with Andy is a lot of those widows, some of them, some of them were definitely not Christians. <laughs> some of them were just, you know, so I walked into some really scary and repulsive places where things were really dark. But I walked in a lot of those homes with my mentor, Andy, and met some really precious godly sisters in Christ who knew how to pray and loved Jesus. And they were not spiritually impoverished. And if we're not careful, one thing that we will, if I preached a sermon at Covenant Prayers on the health and wealth gospel, and I told you, if you believe in Jesus, you're gonna be healthy and wealthy and wise, you won't ever have any problems, you guys would run me out here pretty fast. We do not believe in the health and wealth gospel, except for in places where we do where we expect that godly people will thrive and poor people can't be godly. Well, that's to believe the health and wealth gospel. And it just isn't true. So there are Christians in Ukraine today who are very faithful believers and they're being crushed. And they don't have enough food. And they don't have enough medical care. They're no less godly than we are. And they're clinging to Jesus today in ways that we probably never, never have maybe. And so we can't believe the health and wealth gospel, right? We just can't do that. We can't assume that poverty means godliness and we can't assume that wealth means godliness. That'd be a major biblical mistake. Okay, so here's what I want you to do. I am not gonna read Isaiah 58. I want you to read it on your own again. It was part of your homework. Um, just note that there is a fast that doesn't mean a thing to Yahweh. And there's a fast that Yahweh loves. And I would love for you to read it. So if you want to just basically in verses two and following, um, you'll see a fast that Yahweh says is empty and meaningless. But in verses six and following, you'll see a fast that Yahweh delights in. And there's a real uh, connection to Isaiah 1, 5 through 7a, because health will spring up speedily. Oh, sorry, in chapter 58, Isaiah 58. Thank you. Sorry, thank you, Victoria. Okay, now, here's what I want to do. I want to end by reading the Jeremiah passage because there's something in here I can I remember the first time I read it. Well, I remember the first time it grabbed my attention. Okay, that's probably 25, 30 years ago. And I'll just end with this because here's, here's, here's something that, that your pastors pray for you and you pray for this for us and for each other is that we'll know God. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing better than that, right? <laughs> right? I mean, just nothing better. We want to know God and, and mature in knowing God. So here, what Jeremiah, what Yahweh says through Jeremiah about what it means to know Yahweh. For thus says Yahweh concerning Shalom, the son of Josiah. Remember, Josiah was a reformer. Josiah uh, discovered the book of the law. I was like, oh, this is good. We should do this. And there was like major, you know, revival in Judah because Josiah was reading the law and it was awesome. Um, so Josiah was a good king, but Shalom, not so good. So this is what Yahweh says to Shalom, son of Josiah, king of Judah, who reigned instead of Josiah, his father, and who went away from this place. He shall return here no more, verse, into verse 11, verse 12. But in the place where they have carried him captive, there shall he die, and he shall never see this land again. Shalom is being drug away in one of the exiles, leading to the exile, and he's not coming back. He was wicked. Josiah walked with God. Not perfectly, because none of them did. Not even David, right? But Josiah walked with God, listened to God's word, and responded. Shalom said, no, thank you. Well, let's get specific. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages, who says, I will build myself a great house with spacious upper rooms, who cuts out windows for it, paneling it with cedar and painting it with vermilion. Do you, and this is what 
Yahweh's saying to Shalom and those like him, do you think you're a king because you compete in cedar? Is that what, was that what makes you royal? By the way, God's very pro-beauty. This is not, this is not an anti-beauty passage or an anti-glory passage or an anti-impressiveness passage. We were made for all that. But here's the real critique to Shalom. Did not your father eat and drink and do mishpat and tzedakah? Then it was well with him. He, your father, Josiah, judged the cause of the poor and the needy. Then it was well. Is not this to know me, declares Yahweh. What a question. Isn't this what it means to know me? To practice justice and righteousness? To judge the cause of the poor and the needy? Isn't that what it means to know me? So here's some, some homework. Reflect on that. Why is that true? Why is it true that to know God himself works itself out in taking legitimate care of the vulnerable. Father in heaven, thank you that you've loved us and you saw us in our rebelliousness and our utter impoverishment and vulnerability. And that you covered us with your own son and with his blood so that we wouldn't be vulnerable, so that we wouldn't have debts to pay that we could never pay. And so that we would be co-heirs with Christ Jesus, the true son of all things and forever. Oh, you have enriched us. Let our hearts love you more and more and more. And give us joy and gladness in delighting in you and your ways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, I, think, I bet you'll have something to eat here today. Enjoy that. <laughs>